Before we get started today, I want to let you know that we are very thankful for all our listeners who tune in each and every episode to hear all the great information from entrepreneurs and investors within Black culture. If you are excited about this podcast, make sure you tune in to our Black Equity Premium content over on Patreon. To get access, you can click in the show notes and follow that link over and become a full-on patron. We would appreciate your support, and we are going to make sure we deliver content just like this on the sneak preview episode of Black Equity Premium. Also, if you are an entrepreneur or investor and you want to be a part of our digital network, you can text the number inside the show notes and text the word Black Equity to get access to all the latest updates dealing with access to capital, strategic partnerships, and other opportunities as well. We thank you again for being an avid listener and coming in each and every episode to listen in to the Black Equity Podcast. I'm DJ Moultrie of the Black Equity Network, and here is your Black Equity Premium Sneak Preview. Enjoy. listeners we are here for another great episode of the black equity podcast i'm excited about this conversation we don't get to talk about this enough uh today we're going to talk about uh more opportunities to acquire and uh on this episode we have a very special guest who's actually launched his own fund in the space of acquiring uh we have tosin oduwale on the line tosin are you there yes i am uh, Tosin, welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure, man. I've been following you guys on Instagram for quite some time, so I was uh, very, very excited when um, you had invited me on the show. Definitely. And t- tell us a little bit about yourself, and, and uh, I know you have a, a fund that you recently launched. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the fund. Great. So, uh, yeah, it, it goes back um, to the 80s, actually. <laughs> you know, I was born in 
St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Uh, both my parents, they, they left Nigeria when they were really young. Uh, I believe my dad came here when he was 17 to go to design school. And my mom, <clears throat> she came here when she's, I believe, around 22 or 23. Okay. And so uh, immediately that they got here, you know, they got married, had my older brother, then had me. And um, one thing that in hindsight I kind of look back on, which I thought was kind of weird, is that from the second they came to this country, they were thinking about entrepreneurship. They were trying to think about how they could buy property or start businesses and stuff like that. So kind of growing up, I was always seeing my mom, my mom specifically, just really seeing her hustle, like really seeing her try to put together this clothing store that she had uh, for quite some time in St. Louis. It was called uh, Contemporary African Fashions. Okay. And so all she would do is she would sew African clothing for like weddings, um, bar mitzvahs, people that were celebrating like 50th birthdays and stuff like that. And so I used to always see her trying to like generate new clients and get leads and market herself and go to trade shows and stuff like that. And so I figured, you know, as a kid, I'm thinking that's just mom just working. And then, you know, as I got older and I started looking back, I was like, oh, no, she was building a business, you know. And so um, and then when they started buying property uh, around, I think they were like 25, 26 when they started buying property. Um, My dad had bought a 28 unit apartment building. Um, he also had an office building, and then my mom, she would just buy a lot of like single-family homes in the hood. She'd fix them up, and then she'd rent them out to elderly Section 8 tenants. And so she used to bring me along with her when she'd be picking up different wow. texts from the 28 unit and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I never wanted to go with her, <laughs> you know, but she would always just drag me. <laughs> right. Because I was like, yo, I don't want to go all the way over here, and then we got to knock on the door sometimes the tenants don't want to open the door because they don't have the rent money and we're just sitting there banging on the door banging on the door and i'm like yo i want to be home i want to go home and play sega genesis or something right right you know and and so yeah so i i grew up in a household of 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 people that were just really trying to put things together um they never really had any guidance you know that they didn't know anything about american culture um Inside my house, it was Nigeria. It was only America when you stepped out the front door. <laughs> That's, you feel, dope. You feel That's dope. I like that. Yeah, but inside the house, Nigerian right. food, Nigerian music, Nigerian movies, Yoruba language. It was, you know, so I just grew up in that. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I, I, I credit my mom with teaching me how to adapt in any type of environment. You know, um, she used to always tell me that one of the things that she always did was that, um, you know, her, her accent is, is very thick. It's still thick to this day, and she's been in this country for, like, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so when she would do business or try to collaborate or get new clients, people would always think, oh, this is just this little old African lady. She don't know nothing. You know, English is terrible. And she would say she would say that she wants people to think that she's incompetent so that they won't stand in her way and they won't right. ever try to underestimate her. <laughs> yeah. That's dope. And so, yeah, but she she's very, very much fluent in everything American culture. <laughs> like, right. it's ridiculous. And so I kind of I kind of took that from her and, you know, being raised in St. Louis, grew up a little bit in Chicago. And then when I was 14, you know, I was getting a lot of trouble in school, like a lot of trouble. I was getting suspended like every two or three weeks for like a good four or five year period straight from like fifth grade in elementary school all the way up to ninth grade i was getting suspended like every two or three weeks now was it something serious or you were fighting or what was it uh fighting would probably be the most occurring factor 
Uh, sometimes it'd be like mouthing off to teachers. Um, but yeah, it was mostly fighting. And yeah. then, um, you know, when I was 14, my dad was like, you know, I'm out of hand, I'm out of control. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to stick this kid in a boarding school in England. Mm. And so, wow. yeah, he just took me to Europe, man. And I, I wasn't I wasn't ready for that. I was 14, you know, beginning of puberty. I, I had my close group of friends that I had, you know, grown up with. And, you know, we had been together since the first grade. Yeah. And um, and he just took me out of St. Louis and, and shipped me to a boarding school called uh, Pangborn College in Reading, England. And it was like a Navy boarding school, so you had to wear, like, the Navy uniform with the hat and the jacket and all that stuff. And, you know, I was I was so mad and so, like, uncomfortable and just, like, why is this happening to me? And then, um, but, you know, in hindsight, I look at it like, you know, that was actually one of the best things that happened to me because being at the being able to, like, kind of, uh, you know, mingle with the other students. And uh, a lot of those students were from all of all over the world north africa australia europe asia etc and uh just being able to mingle with them it, it taught me how to be able to communicate with people from different cultures different walks of life because in boarding school it's not like day school where i go to school at 9 a.m and at 3 30 i come home you know it's like i'm living with these kids i'm the i'm living with my classmates for three four five months at a time mm. you know and so just learning how to deal with different cultures and different people and and um and then you know i didn't last too long at the school in, in england i actually got expelled from that school and, wow. then, <laughs> and then my dad was like all right you want to keep playing games we sending your ass to africa <laughs> <laughs> and then they from uh, england to africa yeah okay. and then they they put me in a boarding school in nigeria in, okay. in Bado, nigeria which was um not as good as far as like the amenities. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Understood. Yeah. And so I was there for five and a half years. And um, we, I was in Africa for five and a half years. They didn't let me leave the continent. Like, even when I was like, when we would go on our like little Christmas vacations, it, it would be to another African country. Like, they was like, Ooh. yo, we, we're not taking this dude back to the Western world at all until he's done with high school. Okay. You know? And um, so I learned a lot about business there because the thing about Africa, right, the, because Africa, majority of African countries are third world countries, mm -hmm. people know that there is no welfare, there is no Section 8, there is no government assistance, there is no public school. So if you want to live, if you want to eat, if you want to get educated, you got to build a business, you got to figure out something to sell. You know, so the conversation that we're having is 15, 16 year old kids in the dorm. We're talking about, hey, like, what kind of businesses are you guys going to start when you get out of school? What businesses work? What businesses don't? We used to have our debates on, you know, different Nigerian businessmen and try to, you know, pick apart their businesses as if we knew any better. Like, we didn't know anything, but we were just trying to, you know, figure out how did they build this cement company or this water company, et cetera. And those were the things that consumed us in high school as opposed mm. to. When I was here and I was going to school, the things that we talk about and argue about would be sports, yeah, it'd be music, it'd be you know fashion, you know. But over there, it's like everybody's trying to figure out how do you build something that can allow you to support yourself and your family at a young age, you know. And so um, that had a huge impact on me. Um, even like the homeless people and the people that are in severe poverty, 
there is no government assistance for them. So the way that they eat, they'll go into the woods or into the forest or the jungle or whatever. They'll pick fruit. They'll bring it back to the city and then they'll sell it in the street. And that's how they yeah. get their money. So that, that type of hustle is, is, yeah, is that's serious. It, it does something. It does something when you have a whole country or a whole continent that's just in that, yo, we got to make something happen because nobody's coming to save us. Wow. You know, it, do you so, think, do you think growing up, you know, you were looking at your, both your parents being entrepreneurs, do you think that was kind of embedded in them and they brought that, they brought that to the States? Uh, 100%. That, that's not something that they grew up and said, Hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. It's like, Hey, if you want to go live in America and get out of this country, you got to figure out how to make some money. Yeah. Cause that's the only way. Cause you know, at, you know, during their generation, that was the education generation that if you had a great degree, then the world would open up for you. You know, that was them growing up in the 60s and 70s. Right. So the way out of poverty was education. So they was like, yo, we got to make enough money so we can go to a good university in America. Then we can get great jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my parents kind of thought they went the education route. But I think when they got here, they found out real quick. That having a degree is not gonna open up the doors of success for you. <laughs> it sounds good. Yeah, it sounds great. But they they figured that out real quick. So even though they finished school and they got degrees, my dad and my mom have never ever in their entire life used their degree to get a job mm. ever. You know, so um, that so how did that rub off on you? So you knew early on that education was cool, but. You were going to have to do something else? Yeah, so my dad kind of put it to me like this. He okay. said, look, you black and you in America. Mm. Get, the de- get the degree so that you at least have that checked off. So, you know, some people care about it. Some people don't. If you're black and you don't have a degree, it doesn't matter if you're Einstein. People are going to look at you like you ain't nothing. Right. But if you just get a degree, get a degree in anything, it doesn't even matter. Just so you can say, yeah, I went to school. So just the image is that you're not an idiot. E- even if you're brilliant. But he was like, yo, just get a degree, but do whatever the hell you want to do that's going to actually put food on the table and that's going to make it so that you ain't got to ask me for money anymore. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so that was kind of like the way they put it to me. You know, okay. they were just like, yo, you know, get the degree, but, you know, you, you have to figure out something else on your own, though. So what did you end up figuring out? Um, Well, I, I, I played around with a lot of stuff. You know, I came back to the country when I was 20. Okay. Um. First thing I did is I opened up an eBay account, a PayPal account. I started buying and reselling stuff okay. on eBay. Um, this was back in like 2005. Um, right, th- right. There used to be a website that was called PropertyRoom.com. It, okay. it still might be around, but um, it was basically a website where police would auction off stuff that they seized from people. And so it had like stereo equipment, jewelry, cars, stuff like that. So I would go on Property Room. And try to uh, and try to buy like jewelry so I could resell it on eBay at a higher price. Smart. And so that was what I was doing like the freshman year of college, freshman yeah, like the first second semester of freshman year of college. Um, I was able to make a little bit of money, but it wasn't constant because I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't getting great deals every day. You know, yeah. I'd find something that made sense like every three weeks, every month. So yeah, I'm I'm making you know five hundred, six hundred bucks per sale, but. This is like once a month. So it's not really, it's not really doing much. And then, you know, I kind of started having problems in college. Like my first year of college, my, 
my grades were kind of terrible because I was <laughs> I was trying to like you know grind and hustle and do all this stuff and it didn't really make my dad happy because he was paying for my college tuition out of pocket. Right. And one day he calls me, end of the semester. He call, I'll never forget it. Calls me end of the semester. He's like very, very calm. But when when he's very calm, that means he's about to snap on you. <laughs> you feel me? Uh-huh. So he calls me. He's like, Tosin, um, you have some time to talk? I'm like, yeah. He's like, um, have you checked your GPA? I was like, nah. He was like, your GPA was a zero point zero. Wow. He's like, did you even go to class? <laughs> did, you, did you even go to class? And I was like, because I hadn't checked my grades. Everything was going to his house. was going right. to mail to his house. Right. So I had no idea. And he was like, your GPA was a 0.0. Did you even go to class? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I went to class. <laughs> like, I, don't, I, I, I didn't know I was doing that bad. So um, I kind of was like, just to kind of make him happy. And he, he, he was really upset, man. And I know that he was really kind of looking forward to me being back in the States and kind of just getting that part of my life over. So I kind of put, you know, entrepreneurship on hold for like two years and was just trying to get my grades up and, and just, you know, just do good in school. Um, and so I kind of just kind of fell back from entrepreneurship. You know, I was still young. I was 21 years old. Yeah. And so I just kind of fell into school. You know, I joined a fraternity. So I was, you know, you know, living a frat boy life, partying, doing doing all that stuff. Just, you know, being a regular college kid, a regular 21-year-old college kid. What you want to Uh Business management is what I went to school okay. for. Okay, yeah. so you kind of knew – even though you were focused on school, it was still going to be in the business. In the business, oh, hundred oh, percent. And okay. uh, you know, I, I used to make music at that time too. Mm-hmm. So I had a, um, I had a music business course because I wanted to learn about intellectual property and royalties and splits and all nice. that stuff. Nice. You know, I, I grew up listening to music, so I'd heard all the stories about artists getting screwed over by labels, and you know, I, I had been knowing about that. So I was like, I want to learn. Like, how do they actually divvy up royalties and how do they re- recoup the money that they put out for studio time, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, I just kind of buckled in on that and then uh, ended up moving, transferring to New Jersey, where my dad lived, uh, to finish school. Just because the Midwest, man, I was just running into a lot of problems there. Got into some very, very unfortunate times in my life where I was wrongfully accused of some things and I... Had, had had to fight those things, mm-hmm. you know, having to fight the law, and it drained a lot of a lot of time, energy, and money. And so I had moved to New Jersey to finish school and kind of just kind of start fresh. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of when I got back in the business. Okay, you know, watch out, man. So um, got to get, yeah. get good now. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, um, really, of course, real estate was always in my mind, but it wasn't something that at that particular time I believed I had the capacity to do. Because at that particular time, I was told that in order to buy real estate, you have to have two years of tax returns. You have to have a job. You have to have a credit score of X, Y, Z. I didn't have tax returns, didn't have a job. I didn't even know what my credit score was, you know. So, so that, to me at that time, I just thought that was out of the question. Right. And so I started, you know, like selling cars. Like I'd go to auctions, try to buy cars cheap, resell them. And then uh, I had the great idea to start a company renting out cars, but not just regular cars, like uh, sports cars. Right. And nice. so I started my first company, my first LLC. It was called Exotic Sports Car Rentals. And, um, you know, I didn't have the money or the financing to go and get these vehicles. And so I, you know, put a business plan together, 
put some ads on Craigslist saying that I was looking for business partners to invest in my idea, to invest in my company. And then, you know, I met with a couple Asian investors in Brooklyn, met with some Jewish guys in Milburn, New Jersey. And, you know, nobody was really showing a lot of interest. Um, the Asian group that was in Brooklyn, they actually did. And so when I came to meet with them, you know, they were talking about how they were going to put X amount of dollars into the company so we could get our first inventory, so that we get a car lot, cover marketing, signage, like all that stuff. I'm like, okay, great, wonderful. Um, my mistake is that, number one, I didn't have any of my ideas copyrighted, trademarked, protected, or anything mm. in any way. And then I actually gave these guys a copy of the business plan. No. Well, I, I can see why you would. Yeah, you, yeah. You know? I'm, thinking, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking they about to give me some bread. And I'm like, oh, y'all want to take a copy? No problem. Here you go. Yeah. Uh, they stopped answering my calls, man. It was over. And they went and started the company on their wow. own. And did their own thing. And I was like, damn. They just got me. And there's nothing I can do. Like, I, I don't, I can't sue them. I can't. And I don't even have the money to sue anybody. You know, and so what was the lesson learned there? Um, to be honest, and I mean, I think when you do have a proprietary idea, you do want to find out how you can protect that. Yeah. Because like even that, and then you want to put certain clauses like, like like now in all of my real estate fund prospectuses, there's a disclaimer that says that it can't be disseminated, that it can't be shared, that it, you know, there's a like a non-disclosure agreement mm -hmm. that means that they can't speak of or act on any information for at least three years so there's certain things that it's not going to stop somebody from copying your idea but if you do now you have real legal grounds yes. to go after them exactly you know and so I, I just had no idea about that back in what 2009 right you know and so so that was kind of the beginning and the end of that idea did you ever did you ever see that they went off and, and took the idea and actually yeah successful or yeah so um i'm not sure I'm not sure if they were successful. I know that they did start an LLC and they did buy a couple of cars. And okay. They did do some marketing and branding. I'm not really sure how successful it was, though. I understand. You know, and so um, and then, you know, I was like, you know what? My mom, she was still she was still in real estate. She was still buying houses. And every time, you know, she'd buy a house, she would call me and be like, hey, Tosin, I just got a, a house for, for, for two thousand dollars. And it's going to cost me four grand to fix it up. And I'm going to rent it out for eight hundred a month. And I'm like, man. How you find a house for two thousand like, dollars? Mm -hmm. How you do that? Because keep in mind, around this time, this was around when the um the the mortgage crisis had happened. The country was in a huge recession. Right. Inventory, especially single family homes, were really really cheap in a lot of places in the country, and so it was not unheard of to find a house that was in pretty decent condition for two grand or three grand or four grand in the right. Midwest. Right. You know, so my, my mom, she just took advantage because she, you know, I think the only mortgage she really ever had was a mortgage on our home and all of her investment properties. She always just bought cash, you know, and she was running a, a nursing home business that catered to uh, mentally challenged adults. And uh, when I was in college down there, I used to help her run, run, run that as well. So she was making a lot of money from the clients like uh, insurance and the state grants and stuff like that. So she was heavily liquid. So when she sees a deal on a property, she's buying it. She's snatching it up, you know. So I said, you know what? Let me get back into real estate and try to see if I can figure this out. Um, I never really wanted to take the route that my mom was doing real estate because she was just doing single family homes. 
And I was always think I wanted to do it like how my dad did and buy like apartment buildings and stuff. Right. You know, but at this time, my dad had gotten completely out of the real estate business and he was in the tech business. He's been in tech and, and IT since like 2002. So there was really nothing that he could tell me about real estate in that current market because he had been so far removed from it. Right. So it was kind of like, all right, you know, I got to go to the internet and YouTube University and, <laughs> and, try to, and try to see what I can find and what I can piece together. And, you know, I just started Googling different lenders, different mortgage companies, calling them up, just asking questions. Uh, I put a lot of ads on Craigslist for investors just to say if I could take them out for coffee or if I could meet with them or something just to kind of pick their brains and stuff like that. And um, there was a gentleman named Edgar Montalvo. Okay. Uh, Argentinian guy, made a lot of money in construction, but he never really owned property himself. Hmm. So when we met, he's like, hey, I have some cash, and I'm trying to become an owner. I'm trying to build a portfolio. And so I was like, you know, I'm new to real estate. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I can learn and I can help you, <laughs> you know, and he was like, you know, I'll never forget that. He said, okay, we can learn together. And I was like, man, okay, cool. Right. So, you know, I just started trying to find deals and, and find, you know, one of the biggest things I had in real estate in the beginning is that I didn't know how to run comps. So I would find a deal, but I wouldn't be able to tell you if it's worth what they're asking for. Right. And so that I messed up a lot of relationships with other investors because they would ask for comps and I would send them some BS comps that just weren't even, you know, just totally out of this world. It wasn't even right. You know? right. And so um, I ended up finding a townhouse. Was it a townhouse? No, it was a, six, it was a single family home. Single family home in Orange, New Jersey. Um, I reached out to the owners, negotiated their asking price down to $42,000. I saw that the comps were going for one hundred and fifty. So I negotiated this property down to 42000 and needed $30,000 in work. I called up Edgar. I said, yeah, hey, Edgar, I got one. Mm. He's like, all right, let me see it tomorrow. We saw it tomorrow. Next day, he paid cash for it for 42000 bucks. Wow. So before the and – so, and then he had paid me an assignment fee. It wasn't a traditional assignment fee, like how you assign a contract. He just paid me out, out of pocket. Right, right. You know, because I didn't, I, I just, I, I, I introduced him to the owner and they signed the contract, but gotcha. he has integrity. He, he, he wasn't going to screw me. He's like, yo, Tosin, I got you. And he got me, right? So before they started the renovation, he had like some type of family emergency in Argentina and he had to leave for three months. And so he's like, how am I going to get this project done? I'm going to be gone. And so I said, hey, like, I can oversee it for you. <laughs> so basically- nice. You know, his whole contractor team, they come in, he goes to Argentina, and they're reporting to me every day. And I basically project managed um, the entire project, which was my first, it was, it was in, in, in essence, my first wholesale deal. And so, you know, I documented the whole process, took pictures, took video, and then that was what I was using as my commercial to get other investors so that I could wholesale to other investors. So wholesaling was kind of how I got the initial capital to start, um, you know, investing in real estate on my own. And then um, I ended up buying some property from the city of Newark for, for really, really cheap. I believe it was $1,000. It was uh, an empty lot of land. And so that was the first uh, property that was in my portfolio, nice. something that I owned free and clear. And then it kind of just grew from there. And really, I got, I really, I, I kind of exceeded more in 
kind of consulting other investors and wholesaling, finding properties for other investors before like actually building a sizable portfolio. And that really helped me kind of build my reputation in New Jersey. And I just built a great reputation, man. And it was just like, uh, uh, my word was kind of golden with a lot of investors there. And that was kind of what I used to kind of just springboard myself, you know? And then, yeah, yeah, I guess that was how I got into real estate and decided to take it seriously. Um, I was still in college, so I still had like a year or two left um, before I could be like totally free. Right. So I was really just trying to, you know, mix and match the two. And in between classes, I, I'd go into an empty classroom, pull out my camera, and start making videos on like how to assign contracts, how to calculate your credit score, stuff like that. And I put that out on YouTube and was just trying to build like a online brand as well. And uh, that was kind of how I got into real estate um, officially. And then, of course, you know, you always want to find people that you can partner with, people that you can network with, collaborate with and do bigger things. And so I ran into somebody who was doing pretty well in real estate in New Jersey. He started off as a real estate investor. And then he had started a training school. Um, I'd initially, my strategy for kind of trying to build that relationship was not because there was anything that, you know, he could teach me that I didn't know. I was just like, yo, I want to, you know, build this relationship. So I'm going to act like I don't know anything, sign up for the courses, become a student, and then see if I can intern for the company. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it worked. You yeah. know, it, it, it took like a year and a half, two years. But, um, you know. I finished the courses and then I, you know, sent the email like, yo, you know, let me intern. And they hit me back and said, yeah, sure. So I interned for the company for like a year and a half, two years. Then it got to a point to where they had asked me to build out like their uh, sales um, sales strategy for one-on-one -on -one coaching. And so myself and another student who had turned into an intern, his name was Brandon J. Wigley, together we together the 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 sales the i'm sorry the one-on-one -on -one sales strategy and the scripts and, and the, basically this is the one-on-one -on -one coaching product for that company right which to date i think has grossed over six or seven hundred thousand in sales from just the one-on-one -on -one coaching nice you know and so um and and, and then, then of course getting commission on all the sales just allowed me to kind of just have more cash that i could put into other deals well, let's, and, um, let's talk yeah. about something that you mentioned, because I, I saw a piece of wisdom uh, within what you were saying. You said you always want to find someone to partner with. How did it's a it's a it's a beautiful quote. And I yeah. agree. But how do you where did that wisdom come from? And why do you always want to find somebody to partner with? Uh, where does it come from? Because me personally, I'm very self-aware and I know I can't do everything on my own. Mm. Like I, I, I know myself. Like I know there's a lot of areas in my life where I'm an idiot. Right. You know, like I, I'm, I'm just keeping it 100 yeah. percent. And so I think the biggest thing that people do is they want to be the boss. They want to be the CEO. And it's like it may not be time for you to be the CEO yet because you got a lot of growing and development. Right. Before you can be a CEO and manage everything, exactly. you know, and so. I just always knew that, yo, I'm not good at a lot of things. You know, like I know how to come up with the ideas and how to find new things, but sometimes my execution can be garbage. Right. You know, and when it comes to like administrative skills, I lack them. I, I don't have them at all, right. <laughs> you know? And so I'll need somebody who's good at, you know, keeping calendar invites and, and monitoring a budget and, you know, uh, balancing a checkbook and, you know, keeping tabs of like 
your customers is sending email. I, I need somebody that that's where they excel. And so I've always just been very, um, you know, just aware of I need to find people that are strong where I'm weak, which is a lot of places, and figure out a way to where it can be a win-win so that I can focus on doing what I'm doing and you can focus on doing what you're doing. You know, if you're Michael Jordan and you are good at hitting them threes and those buzzer beaters, I'm Dennis Rodman. I'm going to get every single rebound. So I'm not going to try to be you right. and hit the threes. Right. I'm going to get these rebounds. Exactly. And together we're going to win. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Uh, and so, but it takes yeah. a level of humility to have that self awareness, because like 100%. a lot of people come into whatever game it is, whether it be real estate, whether it be business, and like you said, everybody wants to be the chief, and they want to boss everybody around and tell people what to do instead of being more collaborative and figuring yeah. out, well, you know, what is everybody's strengths and how can we all eat together? Yep, hundred percent. And then another thing that I learned is that. It's going to be very hard for you to be an effective leader or CEO if you're trying to tell people to do things you ain't never did in your life. Boom. Why, why, why am I going to listen to you? you? You didn't even do this, but you're telling me to do it. How do you know I'm even doing it right? There's this idea out there that, you know, a true boss delegates, which I, I get that idea. But like you just said. Yes, it's fine to delegate, but you should already have been down that pathway yeah. in order for you to delegate that task so you know if it's done correctly or not. Exactly, correct. Like in order for me to delegate correctly, I gotta know if what you're doing is right. Exactly. I could just de- I could I could delegate, but if I ain't never did it, for all I know, you could be going backwards. And I had no idea, but I feel comfortable telling you what to do. Or and just feeling good and having my ego rubbed that, oh yeah, I'm the boss. Or you could be wasting resources. Something that could could be taking only one day to do. You're taking five days to do. Because I Correct. threw you at it instead of giving you a streamlined approach to it. Very, very true. Very, very true. So you, you, know, so. you have this world of real estate. You, you've built out this sales channel. So where are you now in your your space of real estate? What new ventures are you getting into now? So right now, um, so I, I, I co-founded a real estate fund about two years ago that that was actually about two or three years in the making before the world actually knew about it okay um back in 2000 what was this 2014 2014 and 2015 you know i always just saw myself being involved in like a hedge fund or a mutual fund or something big you know I, uh, if, if if your listeners google blackstone Mm-hmm. It's, it's a real estate fund that I think manages over $110 billion in cash for investors. Right. And so I used to hear about them on CNNBC and MSNBC and all these other funds. There's literally thousands of them. And I was like, yo, I want to do that. You know? Mm-hmm. And so I started sending out emails to all the real estate funds or investment funds that were in New York, just trying to see who would respond and maybe give me some information, you know? Mm. Um, I didn't have money to pay for it, so I was looking for somebody to give me some information for free. <laughs> right. So I, <laughs> so I wasn't expecting, you know, everybody to just, you know, give me their time. But I said, you know what, I'm going to play the numbers game. If I send out a thousand emails to, you know, four or five key people at four hundred different companies, somebody's going to say something. Mm. And then, you know, one day I was um, looking at my Snapchat notifications. <laughs> okay. And um, there was somebody that was watching all of my snaps, and it was a very, very long name, so I knew it was a foreigner. Mm-hmm. But I was like, yo, who is this person? I don't know who this person is. 
So I just copied it and pasted it into Google. And then it brought up <laughs> that this guy was a managing principal at a real estate fund that it did like over $400 million in deals. Wow. And I'm like, why is this guy following me on Snapchat? And who is this guy? <laughs> How did he find out? Like, who? So I sent him a message and I said, hey, um, have we met before? And he's like, no. And I'm like, I see you're in real estate. He's like, yeah, I see you are too. <laughs> so I was like, what do you guys do? Already knowing, because I'd already been on the website. Right, right. Saw whatever, but I just wanted to see, is he going to engage me? And yet he just started going into it, gave me his phone number. He said, hey, man, come down to my office. And so um, this guy's name was Gian, and he's managing principal at a, a real estate fund called the Prodigy Network in uh, New York. They're originally from Columbia. Um, they started their fund in Columbia. They made a few million dollars down there, decided to come to America. Then they were doing some things in Miami and then decided they were going to be headquarters in New York and only focus on New York deals. Mm -hmm. uh, keep in mind, this guy was 35 at the time. Okay. So that kind of blew me away. It's like, okay, this guy's young. Yeah. This guy's young, and he's a managing principal. They've done over $500 million in deals. I said, okay, I'm going to take this opportunity. So I went out to their office. Uh, I was in the financial district in Manhattan. It was on like the 30th floor of the Donald Trump building or something like that. And uh, I go in there and then, you know, this guy, he takes me into their conference room and and basically breaks down on the first meeting, breaks down exactly how they started their fund, how they run their fund, how they do everything. Mm. Like, first meeting. Tosa. And so back up, back up, back up. Yeah. What are you thinking when you when you're walking through those doors, you sit down with these people and they give you the full game? What's going through your mind? Man, I mean, before I came in there, I was thinking, okay, when I when I when I actually get face to face with them, they're gonna see I'm a rookie, and then this is gonna be a short meeting. Right, right. But but it wasn't, <laughs> but it, it wasn't really like that. It was like, yeah, we know you're a rookie. We want to show you how we did what we did. Wow. So it was a different, you know, perspective or mindset or whatever. And so you know, me knowing that, you know, I learned slow. You know, I learned very slow. I'm pretty sure I'm not gonna remember everything that this guy's telling me. I put my phone, my phone on record, and I record the entire meeting. Mm. I still have the recording to this day. <laughs> You're a very <laughs> smart man. That's very still smart. have it to this day. And so, you know, he breaks down exactly how they started, how they raised their funds, where they advertise, where they market, what third-party fund administrator that they use, just everything. And so I said, "Hey, um, I have a partner. Uh, can I come back and you can explain this to him as well?" And he's like, yeah, sure. So my partner at that time was um, the individual whose school I had joined and who I began working for, which is Jay Morrison. Right. And so, you know, I, as soon as I leave that me meeting, I shoot Jay a text. I say, hey, bro, you need to be in New York next week. <laughs> like, for real. Bro. Like, bro, whatever you got going on, you need to cancel that. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, I gave him a little rundown on, um, you know, who these guys were. And I'm like, yo, like, we need to start our own fund, too. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I bet. So we end up coming back a week later, two weeks later or whatever. I record that meeting as well. And, you know, he breaks down to us how they did their fund. Their fund was a Regulation A Tier 1, which uh, only gives them a $20 million cap, I believe, per year. Mm. And so we did some research and we're like, okay, Regulation A Tier 2 would be better for us because it gives us a $50 million cap. 
and uh, we can um, solicit non-accredited investors. Right. And so, so yeah, so we, we launched the fund June 1st, 2018. Uh, we raised $10 million in capital commitments in the first seven days. And um, I was with uh, that fund for about two and a half years up until November 15th, 2019, when I resigned to start my own fund. Just to be 100% frank with you, majority of the biggest funds in the world are run by people who are who have no type of celebrity, no type of brand, no type of image at all. And yeah. they raise hundreds of millions of dollars in a short period of time. And they don't all go to Harvard or Yale or Wharton. They're just regular people that just want to get into the real estate fund space. It's a very small circle. There's not a lot of people that um, manage funds when you compare it to the amount of people that are doctors, lawyers, mechanics, dentists, et cetera, you know. And they move very quietly. I mean, this is a lot of times quiet money. Correct. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of family offices, institutional investors. Sometimes these family offices are overseas. A lot of times they're people that don't even want the world to know that they have X amount of dollars and they're investing through trusts or through LLCs or S-Corps. And they're trying to just conceal themselves as best as possible. That was the reason why when the Panama Papers leaked, it was so, you know, world, it was it was such a big thing on the news because it was like, oh, we actually get to see the names of who the real rich people are. <laughs> right. <'Cause> nobody <laughs> ever really knows. You really don't nobody know knows. Money. Yeah. I mean, we are, if you tell somebody to name 10 rich people, most likely eight out of 10 of those people are going to be a celebrity, an athlete exactly. or a musician. Exactly. And they're not the real rich people. They get their checks from the real rich people, the people that own the teams, people that own the labels. <laughs> you know, the people that own the distribution companies, those are the true wealthy people. And, you know, will for the most part, probably never hear their names unless they do something illegal. Now, I do want to get to you starting your own fund, but you said something that just I have to talk about. I've sure. always said growing up, like, OK, yeah, Michael Jordan and, and Kobe Bryant and rest in peace and, and all, all these basketball players out there. But I always said to myself, why are we looking up to them? When the real the real money is who's paying them, yeah, the, yeah. The real money is the owners, but the owners never do any interviews. Nope. The owners, you know, they kind of sit in the background. We never really hear from them. But I want to be the owner. How do I become the owner? I've always thought that way. Uh, why do we focus on the, the the face instead of where the money's flowing? Well, I, I think because I can only want to be like what I see. Mm. You know, it, it's it's hard for me to want to be like a ghost because I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how they move. I don't see, I, I may not even know they exist. So when you're growing up, you're going to admire what you can see. You know, you're going to admire your big brother or your dad or your mom or your, you know, favorite teacher at school or your football coach or, you know, the drug dealer down the street or the rapper or the athlete because you, you can actually see them. You can reach out and touch them for the most part. Right. You know, so I, I think that's kind of why there's an infatuation with, with that, and then also there's there's also something just uh, enticing about being next to somebody or being around somebody that everybody knows. You know, like I think that's the reason why you know people you know love to take pictures with celebrities and post it on the ground because there's just something that people find enticing about being able to say, "Oh, like I was in the same mm -hmm. restaurant <laughs> with you know Ti, or I was in the same restaurant with." you know, uh, <laughs> whoever, you know, so 
I've always yes. been in the impression that if I ever run into these people, I want to figure out how to work with them, not take a picture. Man, I'll tell you this, man. I, I've, I've met and talked to a lot of celebrities. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I do whenever I act like I don't know who the hell they are. Because we you really know, don't. I, we don't know yeah, who they like, are. Sometimes I do. Like, I'll give you an example. So okay. over the summer, over the summer, um, I, I have a 26,000 square foot mansion in Atlanta in Buckhead. And what I do is I rent it out to rappers for their music videos. Okay. So when you look at the Migos music video, Rick Flair Drip, right? They they shot that in my house. Oh, nice. You know what I'm saying? So like, so I deal with rappers and people all the time. Over the summer, Chris Gotti walked into the house because they were shooting a video for one of their new artists. Chris Gotti is Irv Gotti's older brother. They right, ran right. Murder Inc. Mm-hmm. Sold over a billion dollars in sales. He was in insurance he, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Keep in mind, they also have a, a TV show series called, um, and it's called Tales. That's yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, I watch Tales. I'm a fan of Tales. So the night before, just because I was bored, I watched the entire first season of Tales, <laughs> not knowing that they were going to be the people coming wow. to shoot the next day. Wow. So when they when so when their team walks in, I'm trying to like you know tell them the ground rules, tell them where they can shoot. Tell them, you know, what furniture they can and can't move, etc. And then Chris Gotti's walking in. And so in, in my mind, I'm like, oh, snap, that's Chris Gotti. I'm like, snap, that's Chris, that's Chris Gotti for real. You might have manifested that if you were doing that the day before. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but, um, you know, when he, wa- I, when he walks in, I totally ignore him. Like, I don't say hi to him. I don't, I don't even acknowledge him. And I'm sitting here telling his guys, yo, like, basically telling them where they can and can't shoot. Telling them that you know they have X amount of time limit that at that time they got to shut it down, they got to leave. And I'm I'm kind of just doing what I do because this is my business. Like, you guys are paying me for this time, you're paying me for a certain amount of hours. After that time runs up, y'all got to get the hell up out of here, right? No matter who you are, exactly. No matter who you are, right? right? So he now approaches me and starts to talk to me and tell me about what they've done. And in my mind, I'm like, I already know, but I'm acting like I don't even know. Who you are, what you do, what you've done. I'm like, oh yeah, you have a TV show. I'm like, okay, well, if you ever need a location in Atlanta, mm. my rates are very, are very competitive to anybody else. So I'm I'm sitting here trying to say, look, if you gonna spend some money on a location, that's what I'm spend saying. that money here, bro. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so so that's I mean, smart. you know, yeah. To to me, I I don't really care, but I I can definitely see and understand why um some people do kind of place a certain type of you know uh, pedestal on on some of these people. So you, you mentioned that you resigned and you, you went off to go start your own fund. So what's Correct. that process been like? Uh, it's been great. I mean, there, one of the reasons why I resigned is because I just felt like there was a lot of things that could have been done better. Okay. You know, there was just a lot of stuff that I felt um, being that, you know, whoever's the first to do something, as we say in business, whoever's the first through the door catches the bullets. Yep. All the bullets, all the arrows. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, there was a lot of things that I saw that I felt, you know what? We should have known better or we should have maybe did it this way or, or wrote it out that way, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt, you know what? I can do this better on my own. Mm-hmm. And so I started my own fund, which is what I had been wanting to do since the beginning, but because I didn't have the financial ability to do so, I went and got somebody who did and partnered. You feel me? And if I didn't humble myself and say, let me go and pull somebody else in, I would have never gotten that ground floor knowledge and experience to now say, okay, I know how to do it better. Yes. 
you know what I'm saying? So that's kind of where it came from. And I mean, it, it's not really that difficult. Um, I guess that may be somewhat biased because I'm familiar with the process now, mm-hmm. you know, but um, it's really just about having, you know, the proper SEC attorney that's going to file your PPM documents the right way, uh, making sure that you're offering is very clear and concise. Um, a lot of the people that invest in funds, they're not financial analysts. So a lot of these terms that we use that we may think are just regular can be complete French to them, you know? So you want to make sure that you're offering documents, you're offering memorandums and exactly what you're doing with the money that you're raising. You want to make sure that that's very, very clear and uh, just easy to understand for anybody, you know, because there's a lot of people that have made a lot of money off of their job because they had a high paying job. But when it comes to investing, they don't know anything about anything. Right. You know, so you want to make sure that it's clear to them and that they're going to feel comfortable saying, you know what, I'm going to put the minimum of $50,000 into your fund and let you decide where the capital is going to be deployed, you know? So there's kind of like a, um, a strategy to that. Um, and then also just making sure that you're well in line with all the SEC regulations because, you don't want to get in trouble. You know, in this fun space, you do something illegal, especially now post-Bernie Madoff, oh, you're yeah. going to prison. Uh, like, you're going watching. to prison. You're going to prison. And they would love yep. for it to be one of us exactly. <laughs> that messes up. And, like, yeah, let's go ahead and use this dude as an example. So just making sure that, you know, your your SEC attorney is is properly telling you and showing you how things are to be filed, how business is to be conducted. And um, after that, then you can just go out there into the world and start soliciting people for cash. So what is, uh, for you, what is the vision of this fund now that you get to uh, be the spearhead of this? How are you approaching this differently? What is the ultimate vision uh, for the fund? Gotcha. So, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I grew up between St. Louis and Chicago, right? So I remember Chicago when Chicago was a real gang city, when it was mm-hmm. GDs and vice lords everywhere, when it was outside. You right. know? And um, I see how the city has the potential and, and how it has changed over the years. But there's still a lot of areas in the south side that are just neglected. And Chicago is a black city. So I said, you know what? I want to create a $100 million offering, and I'm going to dump all of that cash into revitalizing the south side of Chicago, you know, revitalizing the economic activity. You know, in in some parts of the south side, there's no grocery stores that serve or that sell fresh food. Yeah, I was reading about that, the food desert. Yeah, yeah. So imagine if, like, you grow up just eating, you know, processed foods, like the first 10, 12 years of your life, you just, like, you haven't had, or a, a fresh vegetable since yeah. you've been alive. Right. You know, and so being able to not just invest and rebuild in multifamily housing, but also the businesses, you know, and, and being able to fix up commercial storefronts and rent those out to local black businesses that are going to hire people from that neighborhood and kind of just rebuild a community, kind of like how in New York they have Chinatown, where if you go to Chinatown in New York, majority, I'll probably say 90% of all the people that work in those stores and in those places are Chinese. Um, the sign, a lot of the signs, they're not even in English. Right. They're in Chinese. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's like they've built their own little community in these 15 to 16 square blocks that is world world renowned and that's successful. And why That's can't why we say, do the same thing? Exactly. Yeah. I want to do something similar and 
and make the south side of Chicago a place that is hustling and bustling with economic activity, employment, fresh food, parks and recreation, so that we have a black community. Not just having a, a few properties in black communities, but having an entire black community to where, you know, it's doing well, you know, and the neighborhood that we're focusing on is the neighborhood where Michelle Obama grew up. Uh, I believe Kanye West's mother used to live out there. A lot of notable people that we know of come from this particular neighborhood in the South Side. And so it kind of just, um, you know, perturbed me how, like, it's been able to fall into the shambles the way it is. Right. You know, and so I think, you know, a real Black Wall Street is actually recreating a Black Wall Street to where you have another neighborhood to where for 10, 12, 13 straight blocks, it's all black owned. And it's not just black owned, but it's black owned and, and, and successful. Right. And thriving. Exactly. You know, it's one thing just to own something and it be black. And it's another thing for it to be successful and thriving. Let's, let's talk about that real quick. I, I know we're, we're approaching the end of uh, the episode. A lot of people are talking about how, you know, hey, I got this property, I own it. And I'm like, yeah, that that's, you know, bravo. I'm, yeah. I'm excited for you, but is the community thriving? Exactly. It, 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 are the people okay? You own this property. You're going to rent it out to somebody. You're going to make a little bit of change, and you're going to have some type of cash flow coming into you, and that's great and that's wonderful. But what about the food desert? Yep. What about you know the lack of jobs in this area, or the lack of this, or the lack of that? What's the bigger picture? And so what you're saying is. And it's funny, I didn't even know that you had this bigger picture. So I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Yeah. You're you're saying let's look at the totality of this area and figure out how to how to build a ecosystem for the people in it to thrive and have lives that they can be proud of. Correct. Correct. Hundred percent. And I, I really kind of took that from what I've seen in Chinatown. You know, I lived in New Jersey for about twelve years, and so I'd be in New York all the time. Um, I used to own a sports bar in Manhattan in the East Village, so I was even in the, I was in New York every day at that point in time, and I would see how Chinatown, as small as it is, it's it's generating, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year from just these, you know, twelve or thirteen blocks. Same thing with Little Italy, same thing with Koreatown in L.A. So I was like, okay, the actual blueprint is there. It's happening. It's it's everywhere. It's it's being done. But why are like we not copying that, you know? And I've I've seen something similar in like uh, Prince George County, Maryland, where there's a lot of people of color that are very well off. Um, but I haven't really seen that in a major city. Right. I haven't seen that in a Chicago or New York. Um, I guess Atlanta could kind of qualify, but there's still parts of Atlanta that are black and poor as hell. Right. You know, so I I don't really think that it's been mastered anywhere in this country to where we have multiple examples in major cities to where we are winning. You know, I would lo- I would love to talk to you uh, maybe off air about some of the cities that we could target long term. You know, obviously yeah. we bumped into each other with uh, this perspective of, of having funds and where are we going to allocate these resources. I would love to talk to you ab- about different strategies uh, internationally. Oh, man, I'm glad you said that, because I've actually been delving into that as well. And I'd love to kind of share with you my notes on that. Yeah, we're going to have to talk. You know, we can't let them have it all. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) But I will say this. If we if we end up working together, I believe in quiet money. 
Correct. I believe in, uh, actually, there's an episode going to be, or actually, it's already aired by this time, where we talk about for five minutes about why don't we have our own, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, black town, you know, similar to a Chinatown. Yeah, yeah. Our our little Africa. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? And then duplicate that in multiple cities. Yeah. And for me, that's the real play. The whole, you know, you know, similar to what you're saying about getting single family properties, that's cool. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I believe that we choose a level in which we play. Correct. And if Correct. we're going to play this game and we have all the opportunities in the world, why wouldn't we do what we've all been asking for for the last 30 or 40 years? We all grew up in Correct. This and said, we don't have this and we don't have that. But yep. Now's the time to have it. 100%. Hundred percent, so, I agree. I, I don't know what those cities will be. Actually, I, I have a couple ideas, but I don't want I don't want to share with with everyone yeah, yet. Definitely. But I would love to have that conversation because if we can figure out where to target these uh, these areas, and for the next twenty years, the next thirty years, shift it. That's something you can look back on your life and and be proud of because 100%. you put this the work in for something that's going to change generations forever. Hundred percent. You know, and I I believe there's also a lot of other people that are thinking this same thing. And, you know, maybe maybe we need to organize some type of like uh, sit down to where we have, you know, 15 or 20 people that are, are that are on this same type of time. And we all meet somewhere in the city somewhere and just have three days to really map out some things. I know in Houston, uh, Christopher Senegal, he yes. started a fund yes. and he's doing some great like, shout outs to Chris. man. Chris is doing some great things in Houston. I believe their fund, they've raised about $1.1 million to date. And they're doing a lot in the fifth ward, I believe. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of Chris Senegal's around in the country. There's a lot. Like, where it's not just, you know, me and Chris and, you know, Donald two, two Peebles. There, there's a lot of people that are doing yeah. this. But for some reason, um, there's just a disconnect in us figuring out who's who and being able to connect and, and get on one accord. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's something that's very, very possible. The blueprint's already there. Now we have more access to knowledge and community and, and everything than ever before, partly because of the internet, you know. So well, I, you know. I'll say this before I before we let everybody know how they could potentially reach out to you and work with you. I've sure. reached out to a lot of different people. The podcast now has over two hundred and eighty something episodes. Oh wow. And uh, what I have found is a lot of people are doing really great work in their particular cities. But once we start having the conversation of let's take this thing uh, on a broader scale and share resources, because see, you could be in Chicago and I could be right now I'm headquartered in Charlotte and we could be sharing intel. It doesn't necessarily have to be where I'm over what you're doing or you're over what I'm doing, yep. mm-hmm. sharing and understanding what's going on in each other's cities, to me, is the real value, not necessarily being yeah. all you know in, inside of each other's money, but being Correct. able to, to call each other up and be like, yo, we got some problems down here. Let's bring the, the coalition together so we can take care of what's happening in this particular city. And going yes. to each other's communities and, and being true, uh, not, not kings, but emperors correct yeah kings they, yeah. they own one territory we yeah. gotta be able to own multiple definitely and that's the way i'm um, i'm envisioning it but how can people work with you tosin and and uh potentially partner with you 
Well, I mean, first, it just starts with us connecting on social media, which will probably be the easiest way. So, I mean, people can follow me on Instagram. It's Tosin underscore Oduale. That's T-O-S-I-N underscore O-D-U-W-O-L-E. Um, also, they can follow my real estate fund page, with his, which is BAP United, B-A-P United. And um, my, my personal email address is info at BAPUnited.com. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally open to partnering and collaborating with, with anybody who's trying to do something of significance that's actually going to help us. And I mean, it's cool to make money. I want to make money, too. I'm not against making money. Hey, I'll do some deals with you, too. But, right. you know, for the, for the long term, I, I kind of want us to just take the opportunity to do something significant. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm open to anything that kind of fits that bill. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. There's a lot of wisdom jam-packed in this episode. I know it's going to shift uh, the culture. A lot of people have been waiting for this conversation. Believe it or not, they've been waiting for this, whether they even knew it or not. And so I thank you so much for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. The doors are open for you to come back and continue this conversation because we're now thank you we've stumbled on something here uh towards (laughs) the end it's like well hold on now i think we have an opportunity to really shift the game over the next 20 or 30 years if not longer and uh, start talking that generational wealth talk and i look forward to uh having that conversation in the future any final thoughts or, or final uh remarks uh for people that are listening Oh man, I, I wish I had thought of something real cool to say. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I guess I can just say that you know, every every day is an opportunity for us to make the following days better. So you know, whatever that means to you, whatever that means to your circle, your family, is just not for us to not take these days for granted. You know, I'm I'm 34. I'll be 35 in July. You know, I never even envisioned myself or what it would be like being in my 30s. You know, as, as a kid or in my 20s. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like we're going to be older. We're going to, we're going to get to that second, third, fourth, fifth stage in life. So think about what world you want to live in when you're 50, you know, and see if there's anything that you can do to start planting the, the, the building blocks for that. Now. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you, Tosin, for coming on the black equity podcast. And we'll be talking to you again. We are truly grateful for today's guest. If you are interested in becoming an approved Black Equity Strategic Partner with this company or one in the past, simply send us an interest inquiry to the following email, djm at djmotri.com. Once again, djm at djmotri.com. Let us know your name, your company, your services, and which guests you are interested in partnering with. As an approved partner, you will have exclusive access to our network and have first opportunity at future partnerships as well. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to join us on the next episode of the Black Equity Podcast.